right, all right, all right, here we go. Continuing our new series, Word for Word, where we are diving deep, looking at particular kind of small sections of Scripture, learning together how we might study and meditate on those Scriptures together more faithfully and deeper, not leave any meat on the bone. And so that's, oh, I'm, look, I'm blocking part of the TV. Cut that out. There we go. All right. Don't block it. Y'all just stay moved. So that's what we're doing. Psalm 1, if you have your Bibles, grab them. Psalms chapter 1 is where we'll be this morning. I've heard it said that when you are young, you think that happiness is inevitable. That you're going to find that special person. You're going to find that fulfilling job. And if you'll be patient, happiness is just around the corner. When you're young, you think it's always coming. You're going to get that fulfilling job or whatever. Life's going to be good. But by the time you're old, and I'll let you guys self-identify as what old means, but by the time you're old, happiness is no longer inevitable, but has been replaced by the idea that happiness might be unattainable. I've heard it described as the difference between two of Shakespeare's most famous plays, Much Ado About Nothing and Hamlet. Much Ado About Nothing In the end, everybody gets to come home. Everybody gets to marry the person they wanted to marry. Everyone uh, that they thought was dead is actually alive. And the ones who you thought betrayed you actually didn't betray you. But then you've got Hamlet, where everyone dies in the end, bitter and disappointed. Spoiler alert, sorry. If you hadn't read it, you've had a couple hundred years. You know, when you're young and naive, you think life is like much ado about nothing. Happiness is around the corner. When you grow up, sometimes we think it's more like Hamlet that it's inevitable or it it, it won't happen. It's unattainable. The Bible actually tells us differently, though. The Bible tells us that happiness, and that's a word that I don't really like, but we're going to use it a little bit. Happiness is neither inevitable nor unattainable, but it's possible. Psalm 1 seeks to teach us how to achieve happiness. So, let's look at Psalm 1 together and see what the words of our God would have for us this morning. We're going to read it all and then we'll go back and walk through it. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the Law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. And its leaf does not wither. And all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so. But are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is the word of the Lord. As we start out this morning, we, we got to answer one question first, and that is this word blessed. Blessed is the man. This is what this psalm is seeking to teach us. What does it mean to be blessed? It can be helpful when you're trying to understand a word like this to look up a definition. Okay, what does blessing mean? Let's look up the definition. Uh, And and that can sometimes be helpful. Other times it can be helpful to look up in the original language. Okay, what did in the Hebrew the word blessed mean? But I think it is most helpful if you look up how this same word is used elsewhere in the Bible, particularly in the same book or by the same author. How is that word blessed used by the same author in the same book? And if you look at those, you can put them all together and understand more fully how he is using this word. What does it mean to be blessed? The word blessed is used 26 times throughout the book of Psalms, and we're not going to look at all of them. You can thank me later. But we're going to look at four of them real quick. Psalm 32, 1 through 2. Blessed, there's that word, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man, there's that word again, blessed, all right, is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. And whose spirit there is no deceit. So, so in, this, in this psalm, we see that the word blessed is saying, if you're forgiven, if your sins have been forgiven, then you're blessed. Let's look at another one. Psalm 34, 8. 
Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Blessed is the man who is, whose refuge is in the Lord who is good, who has tasted and seen that the Lord is good and has found refuge in that Lord. So if you are hiding and trusting and being covered by the protection of the Lord, you've taken your refuge in him. I mean, you are blessed. Let's look at another one, Psalm 65, 4. Blessed is the one you choose, who's you, God, you choose and bring near near to dwell in your courts. And so blessing is linked to this idea of being near God, close to God, in a relationship with God. You are dwelling and close and near to him. Let's look at the last one, Psalm 89, 15. Blessed are the people who know the festal shout. What a fascinating word, festal shout. Who walk, O Lord, in the light of your face. These are people who are blessed who know the joy, festal, like festive, right? They know the shout for joy. They are such joy. They are overflowing with joy and excitement because the Lord, they're walking in the light of his face. That means this idea that God's bright smile looks over them, and they are so in the joy of the Lord and that know his face and know his smile that they're overflowing with joy and gratitude and thanksgiving, and they're festive about it. All right, so, oh, don't, that's too early. Don't go there. Spoiler alert. So how do we define or understand this word blessed as we've looked at all of these other verses in context of Psalm 1? When we take the usage of these other verses and we look at this word, sometimes this word blessed, go back to Psalm 1, this word blessed, when when you look at the original language, it is translated happy. It's translated happier. Happy is the man. All right, some translations do it that way because that's kind of in the word. But the problem I have with the word happy is that in our culture or in the English language, we, we've used the word happy, and it's kind of a fleeting emotion. I might be happy one day, and the next day I'm not happy. The next day I am happy. I have a happy, good happy day at work. And the next day I'm sad at work. It comes and it goes. And that doesn't seem to be what, what this is saying. And happiness is a fleeting thing. And so this is not... Uh, this is not, I don't think it's the best, but maybe, maybe, we, maybe if we said true happiness, right? True happiness. So how do we understand this word blessed, this word uh, maybe happy? Well, it has to encompass all of those things we just read, right? Like the, the for, for under, uh, encompassing forgiveness, encompassing uh, safety and refuge in God, a uh, 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 close, contented, satisfied relationship where your joy is so full and the smile of God over you that you have this festal shout, right? You're overflowing with joy. And there's not one word that encompasses that all for me. Uh, maybe the word joy is close, right? Joy that's not coming and going, but it's always happening. Might be the close we get in English, but I, I, I sought to define it. So here's how I'm trying to define blessing. Blessing is deep, joyous security rooted in the satisfaction we have in knowing God. All right, so when we read this word blessed, I think this is kind of the idea that it's this deep, not fleeting, not coming and going, but deep-rooted, always there deep, joyous security of refuge and security rooted in the satisfaction I am pleased, I have all that I need in, in knowing God. That's blessedness. So, we understand blessedness, get sort of what that means now. So what do we got to do to get this? How, how, how do we get this happiness, this joy, this blessedness? How do, how, do, how do we get this deep, joyous security rooted in the satisfaction we have in knowing God? How do we get that? Well, he, he tells us, and he starts out in the negative. He tells us first what not to do. Blessed is the man who walks not who doesn't do what I'm about to tell you to. So you're going to make an argument from the negative first. Blessed is the man who doesn't do. And he's going to give us three groups of three things. All right, so blessed is the man who, one, walks, not in the counts of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. 
when you see these three descriptors, walking and standing and sitting, the question we've got to first ask ourselves is, are these three words that mean the same, same thing, same concept, same idea, and it's just saying it three different ways, or are they escalating? So do we need to understand the rest of the context to figure that out. And so then we want to look and so blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Okay, maybe that seems a little bit of escalator, right? Counsel, way, seat. But then when you look at the, the final one, you see he walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. That is certainly escalating language. We go from wicked to sinners and scoffers. So we've got these three groups of three, right? That's intentional. Uh, and they're escalating, all right? And so, so we've got to understand what's, what's happening here. So first we have counsel. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel, right here, of the wicked, all right? So what does that mean? It means you are hearing words of advice and counsel from wicked people, right? So blessed is the man who is not receiving counsel, walking in the counsel of the wicked, receiving advice and counsel from the ungodly, the wicked, right? It is counter to the things of God. This could be as extreme as listening to the advice of a radical God-hating atheist to as subtle as listening to the advice of a friend or talk show host or podcast or book whose advice, whose counsel is ungodly and worldly and wicked. It could be bad, bad counsel, bad advice, concerning Christian sexual ethics. It could be bad counsel regarding how Christians ought to view and handle their money and, and maybe how they might cheat on their taxes. It could be bad advice or counsel on, uh, on to forsake the forgiveness you should extend to somebody who's wronged you and someone is telling you, no, you should leave, you should, they should be dead to you, you should forget them, you should walk away, which is antithetical, opposed to what God would tell you to do. All right, so that's the first. So, so you're walking not in this counsel of the wicked, not taking advice from the wicked. That's where it starts. That's level one, okay? And then it escalates. But for, first, this word wicked, I should understand this word wicked is like the general word for evil. All right, this is just kind of throughout Psalms and Proverbs, general word for evil. Who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners. And so when we begin to see this as escalating, that we go from walking to, to, to sit standing in the way and sitting in the seat, it's just escalating. So you start here and you're moving up, you're going deeper and deeper into this problem. And so you're standing in the way of sinners. You've moved from simply receiving advice, receiving counsel from the wicked, and you have now begun to follow that advice. You have begun to follow that advice. You have chosen the way or the path of the counsel that you've received, and you're following that counsel and walking that path that way. So you've heard the counsel, now you're following it and walking it. When we see this word sinners here, we've escalated from the general term wicked to sinners, and sinners is more specific to breaking God's law. It is more specific than just general evil. It is specifically breaking God, uh, rebelling against God and his ways. And so that's escalated as well. But then we move to sits in the seat of scoffers. So you've gone from walking, standing, now you're sitting. And the idea here is that you have now, you are sitting at the leadership table. You're sitting at the table with these people. You are not just taking advice. You are not just following the advice. You're not just hanging out with this wicked, sinful crowd. But now you're at the table with them. You are one of them through and through. And scoffer, this word scoffer, when you read this, uh, is not just doing the wrong things, but bragging about doing the wrong things. Scoffing is an open mockery, open rebellion, laughing and mocking the things of God as foolishness. You have moved from the influenced here in the first two parts to the influencer here. Move from the influence to the influencer. Throughout Psalms and Proverbs, scoffer 
is really a way of almost describing stage five sinner, meaning that you are, when you've become a scoffer, you've got, you've become so far gone, so wrapped up in the wickedness that you're in that there is little hope for you because sin has its claws so deep in you that it's going to take a radical miracle of God to pull you out. So what does this look like in real life? Uh, Anna was a freshman in high school at East Forsyth High School, Kernersville, North Carolina, who, like all high schoolers, wanted to fit in. And Anna, she got into a certain friend group at her freshman year. She's trying to fit it in, and this friend group that she had was all about fashion and boys and being noticed like, you know, most girls are. And in that group, that particular group that she got kind of sucked into, uh, her weight and her appearance was everything. It's all they talked about. Fashion, how to get boys' attention, your weight, your appearance, your clothes, your style. Now, Anna was perfectly healthy. She didn't need to lose any weight, but that's all of her friends talked about, and that's all the advice they gave. They talked about diet after diet and how to fit into smaller-sized clothes and smaller-sized clothes, and that's all they went on about. If boys were ever going to notice you, you had to make sure that you were noticeable. So she started eating healthier lunches. Right? Instead of pizza from the cafeteria, she would eat carrots. But that didn't change much or didn't change her weight fast enough, and so she started skipping lunch altogether. And so she lost some weight, and people began to notice, and they began to compliment how she looked and how much weight she lost and how good she looked, but it wasn't enough. And so she was so obsessed with her weight that she started skipping lunch, and not just skipping lunch, but skipping supper. And then sometimes she would eat supper in front of her parents, and then she'd go up into her own bathroom and make herself throw up and get rid of all of the food she just ate. And so she kept losing weight and kept losing weight until she looked just unhealthy and sickly. But in her eyes, she looked beautiful because she was skinny. As the years went by, uh, she started talking to all of her friends and uh, telling them how important your weight was and how to get a guy's attention. And she helped and she pressured these other girls to skip meals and to throw up so that they could be skinny too. She went from listening to advice to taking advice to giving the advice. She was consumed with her image and she was never skinny enough. Her front teeth rotted out from the stomach acid of uh, landing on her teeth and staying there. She never found meaningful relationships, but bounced from guy to guy to guy, and none of it ever made her happy like it promised it would. You see, the counsel and the ways of the wicked always sound good. They sound pleasing. They sound promising. They promise blessing. They promise blessing. But they never deliver. And so the psalmist has given us this clear warning. True happiness, true blessedness, true joy is never found in the advice and the counsel of the wicked or the ungodly. Don't listen to their paths, their ways. Their ways don't lead to blessedness, is what he's saying. Don't follow their paths. You see, true happiness will never be found through following the advice of the ungodly. Now, this may seem obvious, but really I think this is an incredibly practical point for us. Because every single day, whether you realize it or see it or not, you are bombarded with people trying to tell you how to live your life. They are trying to tell you what is valuable. They are trying to tell you what in your life brings meaning. They are trying to tell you how you can be blessed and be happy. And often we don't realize the advice that we're hearing and being bombarded with. It's everything from Oprah to magazines to politicians to bad preachers telling us how to live, how to be happy, how to be blessed. And so be weary that you do not be wary that you do not heed the counsel of the world, of the wicked, and believe that it'll lead to blessing. All right, well, let's move on. Verse two. What he, he moves from the negative things, here's what you don't do, to here's what you do be blessed. So, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, right, who doesn't do this, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but, right, but his, who's his, his is the blessed guy, his delight is in the law of the Lord. 
Now let's, let's look at this law of the Lord first, real quick, law of the Lord. Sometimes when we, when we read this in the Old Testament, we, we get delight in the law, that's weird for us. We think, how am I supposed to like delight in thou shalt not steal? Ooh, say it again. Thou shalt not steal. Ooh. How, how, how do you delight in that? That's not, that's not what he's saying. That's not what he's saying. This, this word, law, law of the Lord, it is not like the Levitical law or the Ten Commandments exclusively. The, the word law in, in Hebrew is the word Torah, right, which d- d- most often describes the first five books of the Bible, right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And so it describes the first five books of the Bible. Uh, but in the New Testament, the same word law or Torah uh, is used to describe the, the Psalms and the prophets and the other writings. And so really when we read this word, the law of the Lord, we don't need to think Ten Commandments. We need to think the Bible. We need to think the, the scriptures, all of God's word. All right, so when we, we delight in the law of the Lord, we're saying delighting in the words of God. From the stories to the wisdom literature to the instructions to everything that God is saying. We want to delight in God's word. All right, so now let's look at that word delight. delight. But his delight is in the law. As we meditate on this, we should ask the question, why is it that, that all of this up here, right, all of this first verse, this negative part, right, who, who, who doesn't do all things, why is this structure, these three things, why is that not replicated down here? Right? Why is it not that the blessed man doesn't walk in the way of the counsel of the wicked, stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the sea of scoffers, but, but walks and the advice of the good, and stand in the way of the righteous, and sit in the seat of the gracious. Why is it not replicated and gives us the opposite? Why is it that he tells us, don't do these things, but when he tells us what to do, it's different? Well, as we meditate on this, we should see that the the first list, this list up here, is a list of things that are activities of the body. They're external activities of the body, they're outward actions. And now the author is transitioning away from outward actions, walking and standing and sitting, to internal actions. Delighting is an action of the heart. Delighting is a heart action. It is the root of a person. What you delight in is at the core of your being. Because whatever you delight in, your actions follow. Whatever is at the center of your heart, whatever is the most important thing that you delight in, that your affection is, is everything follows. And so whatever you delight in, your thoughts, your affections, your emotions, and your will or your actions proceed from or follow from the thing you delight in. And so if you want to change someone, you don't change their actions, you change their heart. You change the thing that's most important to them. You change what they delight in, and when you change what they delight in, Everything else follows. And that's what the author is doing here. He's telling us you can't just change these actions and find blessedness. You've got to change. The heart has to be changed. You see, what makes someone blessed is not the change of external actions, but a change of what the heart is delighting in. Not external actions, not works. The heart is delighting in. So, We are to delight the center of our being. The most important thing to us should be God through his word. We are to delight in the law of the Lord, the words of God. That that keeps us away from the counsel of the wicked because we're no longer getting counsel and advice from the, from the wicked, but we are delighting in getting our counsel and our instruction from the law of the Lord. If you are listening to the voice of God reminding you of what is good and true and beautiful, and you are delighting in the law of God, in the words of God, and, and God is showing you what is good, and God is showing you what is true, and God is showing you what is beautiful, and then when you, then when you hear the voices of the world telling you, the counsel, of the, when you hear them telling you a corrupted version 
of the truth, a corrupted version of what is good, a corrupted version of what is beautiful, you won't mistake truth for falsity or falsity for truth. You won't mistake evil for good. You won't mistake ugly for beautiful. You won't be deceived by the counsel of the wicked because the center of you is the law of the Lord. You're the instruction of God. You understand who he is and what he's about. See, only when your heart delights in the things of God, your joy is in God through his word, that the counsel of the wicked fades into the background. All right, so this has to be the center of us, the law, God's word. Where do we, you know, what are we talking about? We're talking about where do I fit in in God's story? How do I fit into the story God is telling in the Bible? How does all of these, this giant book, how do I fit into it? How has the stories of redemption and salvation, how do I fit into that? How do we meditate and reflect on and find our delight in what God has done in the past and what God has done in the present, what God is going to do? And resting and delighting in those things. All right, now let's look at this uh, next word. So we, our delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law, he meditates. He meditates. Now, this is a word is weird for us. We don't always know what it means. Because when we think about meditating, we think about like, like Buddhist monks who are like, Mm, right, like are we supposed to like open up our Bibles and go, um, right? Like we don't know what meditating means. Often, sometimes we think meditating means we empty our minds. We think meditating means to remove all distractions and, and get rid of everything, purge everything and hum. But the Hebrew word here is interesting. Remember I showed you this last week. When you want to look up a word in the Bible because you don't know what it means, go to this website, biblehub.com, click on Strong's at the top, go to your verse, and you can, so here's he meditates, right? Here's this word. And so what does this word mean? Yege. What does it mean? To moan, to meditate is to moan, to growl, <laughs> to utter, to muse, to mutter, to meditate, to devise, to plot, speak, roar, growl, groan, devise, imagine. What is he saying here when he tells us to meditate? To moan. Here's the idea. The idea is that you, uh, you are sitting alone in a corner and you are kind of talking to yourself, kind of muttering to yourself. You're, you're thinking out loud. Like you're, you're rehearsing the scriptures. You're thinking about the scriptures. You're saying them out loud. Uh, see, the point is that meditation is not the emptying of the mind. It is the filling of the mind. It is thinking. It's not even just reading, it is thinking and pondering and processing what this means. As you read the scriptures, do not just read them and, and, and walk away knowing what the, you know, what the word said. You should read them and think critically about them. And when you walk away, you should understand them on such a deeper level because you have pondered and thought and wrestled and, and honed and challenged them and questioned them. So now when you walk away, you get all of what it's saying because you've stood in the corner by yourself and you mutter, what, is this, what does this mean? What, what, what does that mean? What, 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 that's confusing. What does that, what does that word mean? Oh, no, okay. Right? That's what it means to meditate. It means to fill your mind, not empty your mind, that you think critically through the scriptures. So he wants us to meditate on the law of the Lord, on God's word that we are delighting in. But how often are we to do it? We're to do it day and night. You see, there's this case to be made that when you study the scriptures, we got to get away from this idea that when I open my Bible, I've got to read three chapters. Open your Bible and like look at two verses, three verses, one verse. Right, because there's a case to be made to memorize it. To think about it all day long as you're at work, to write it on your hand or somewhere and memorize it and rehearse it. Because think about this, how is it that when this was written, how would they have meditated on this day and night? Well, they wouldn't have gone home and opened up their Bible and read it because they didn't have a Bible. If anyone had a Bible or even a book or a scroll or something looking like parchment at this time, the only person that would have had it would have been like the priest. You, you were not going home and opening up your family Bible. You didn't have four or five laying around. So the only way for you to meditate on this day and night was to memorize it. So you memorize the word of God, you came home, and you, you, you mold it through your head all day long. That's what he means, to meditate it on it day and night, to memorize it, and to rehearse it, and to think about it. Let it be going through your mind, thinking about it, chewing on it all day long. 
And when you memorize the scriptures, you are storing them up in your heart because maybe it doesn't apply to you right now. Maybe this thing that you've been studying doesn't really apply to you right now, but you store it up in your heart because one day it might. Because one day you're going to go through a situation and you go, oh, you need to pull that one out. This applies to me now and I need it now. But if you don't store it up there, it ain't going to be there, right? So you store it up. So instead of receiving counsel from the wicked, we delight in the instruction you receive from God and his word. Those are the, the opposites, right? Blessed is the man who is not receiving counsel from the wicked, taking advice from the world and the ungodly, but whose delight is in the instruction, right, is in God's word and what God is telling us to do, what God tells us matters, what God tells us is true, good, and beautiful. Our delight is in those things that we receive from God and his word. The blessing is happiness is found when you do not follow the path of the world and you cannot obtain through works or external actions. It comes through heart change from a heart that delights in who God is and what he's done. It comes when the joy of your heart uh, is, is delighting and bound up in knowing God. All right, move on. So... You've done that, right? So now you've gotten to this point and you understand that you're not taking the, uh, the, the counsel of the wicked. Right? You're not going to do that. You're not following their advice and all those kinds of things. But you are listening to God because you're delighting in his word and the law of the Lord and you meditate on it day and night. So you've got that. You're doing that. So now what happens? What happens to you when you don't do these bad things and you do these good and you, your heart changes and your heart is lined up and Delighting in God, what happens? First notice, verse 3, that this picture is Edenic. Right? It, is a, it is this picture of Eden, the Garden of Eden, this paradise. Look at verse 3. He, he, the blessed guy, he, the guy who doesn't do this stuff, but his, his delight is in the law of the Lord and meditates on the night. That guy, he, is like a tree like a tree planted by streams of water that yield its fruit in season and its leaf does not wither and all that he does he prospers. I think part of the big idea of this is that those whose delight, those whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who, those who meditate and those who are not following the counsel of the wicked, those people experience renewal in their life Renewal that is almost like the Garden of Eden. Because there's trees planted by streams of water. There's fruit and leaves don't wither. Everything that you do prospers. Blessed is the man who doesn't do these things. Whose heart trusts in the word of God. They become like this. So let's, let's dissect this a little bit. Okay, first. Tree. What? He says, you're going to be like a tree. You're going to be like a tree. What, what, what does that mean that you're going to become like a tree? Well, wh- when you think about a tree, what do you think of? You think, you think trees are strong. Right? Past a big old oak tree and you, you watch in the, we had a storm come through last night and I was watching out the window and watching even this, this small tree in my front yard just wave back and forth and the wind rip it back and forth. But you know what didn't happen? It didn't fall over. It didn't get uprooted. It just swayed with the wind. But it stayed right there. It was strong. When storm comes, they might, break, they might bend you, but they don't break you, all right? So I think that's kind of first idea. Then, but notice this tree is planted by streams of water, okay? It's, this tree is planted by streams of water. Now, when you look up this word, you learn that this isn't just a river. It's not that this tree was planted by a river, but that this is a canal. Now, think about Israel. Israel is a desert, right? It's hot. It's dry. Not a lot of water. And so what do they all have to do but dig a trench, dig a canal, Right to connect their trees and their plants and whatever to the water source. They had to dig a trench to get to it, dig a canal to get to it, to get the water to the tree. And so this tree is planted by a canal. It's planted by how water is going to get to it. And so despite being hot and dry in a harsh climate, this tree will thrive because it is connected to the source of life. The streams of water is the tree's source of life. It is its sustenance. In the same way, you thrive, you grow, you, when, when you face the harshest days, when you face droughts, when you face storms, 
you will continue to prosper, to grow, to bear fruit, to not wither, because you are connected to the source of life, which for you is the law of the Lord, God's word. You're like a tree planted by the water, so that even when it doesn't rain, you still have nourishment. You have the source of life. And so what's going to happen when you're like this, this blessed guy who's, who's this tree planted by these streams of water? Well, you're going to yield fruit. Yield fruit in its season. Now, this is a constant metaphor that the Bible uses, right? That if your heart has changed, you are no longer following the counsel of the wicked, but your heart delights in God's word, it's going to be evidenced by bearing fruit. You cannot, listen to me, you cannot genuinely delight in God's word and not see your life changed. If you are meditating on God's word day and night, your life will be different. It will change. It will bear fruit. It's impossible for it not to. If you are meditating regularly on God's word, it will result in actionable changes in fruit in your life. You will grow in the fruits of the spirit, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. You will grow in your obedience to God. There will be actionable change in your life. You will bear fruit in its season. But then he says, your leaf does not wither. He says, your leaf does not wither. We already said that there are these canals that bring water to the tree, right? So the fruit that you're going to produce in your life is not going to stop when the droughts come. And the desert heat, when it hasn't rained for a year, you will still bear fruit. When all the other trees around aren't bearing fruit, but they're shriveling up and dying, you are green, your, your leaf isn't withering, you're bearing fruit, you're still following faithfully to the Lord, you're still growing in the fruits of the Spirit. Why? Because you're connected to the source of life. It is in seasons of difficulty and hardship that your fruit as a Christian is really most evident, right? When everyone else isn't bearing fruit, when everyone else is, is cursing the world and saying everything's hopeless, the end's coming, it's all over. You have odd, strange hope, Right? When hard times come and the world reacts one way, we respond differently because our roots run deep into the soil where the water is, where the source of life is. And we are faithful and we know the faithfulness of God. We know the promises of God. We know how the story ends. And because we are rooted in what God is telling us and how we fit into God's story, we prosper when everyone else around us is falling apart. In difficult seasons, we are rooted in the word of God. Or as we say around here, we are rooted in the gospel. Our roots are in the gospel. And so while the world crumbles, we prosper, we bear fruit, we remain faithful, we continue to grow and remain strong. This may be evidenced by so many different stories, but the one that jumps out to me is Corey Ten Boom. You know much about Corey Ten Boom? You know that she grew up in a family who faithfully followed the Lord. And every single morning after breakfast, uh, her, her family would do Bible study together at the breakfast table. And every evening after supper, her father would read a passage of scripture to them, often a psalm, but he would read something to them. And when World War I came around, Corey Ten Boom and, and her father and their whole family, they took care of anyone who had need. There was many special needs, people who had need, and no one else would care for them, and so they would bring them into their home and care for them, give them a place to stay, feed them, help them do whatever they needed. Other people who had need, they would just bring more and more people in as they had need. As the war passed, she, she hosted girls' Bible clubs and would teach other little girls how to read and study their Bible, teach them what the Bible said. Corey Timboom grew up faithfully following the Lord, rooted her whole life in the Scriptures. And so when World War II came along, there were more people in need, and they knew they had to help. So it started small and continued to grow. They would help this person who needed food. They would smuggle in food. They would hide this one Jewish man so that the authorities wouldn't arrest him, and then it became more and more. They built whole rooms and whole hiding places, if you've read the book, for to hide these Jews so the Germans wouldn't arrest them. They went into concentration camps. Even though it put her and her family at great risk, they did it. Because they knew the Lord would ask them to do it. Eventually, they get caught and arrested. Shortly after they are arrested, her father dies. 
she and her sister are, thr- or she's, or, or her and her sister are thrown into this prison, and she is thrown into solitary confinement for a really, really long time. She's by herself in the dark, and the things she says as she recounts the story that she could call to mind as she sat in the dark in solitary confinement was the scriptures that she had stored up in her heart. They would help her persevere through that difficulty and bear with this fruit and prosper, even though she's by herself in the dark, was the scriptures that she had memorized. And then finally, she's thrown into a giant room with all of these other women crammed into this concentration camp. And there are fleas everywhere. But one of the things that the, the Lord miraculously did to sustain them, there's, there's a lot of things, like miraculous medicine that would never run out and all these kinds of things, but they smuggled a Bible in. Somehow they got a Bible into this camp, and they would read it, and they would share it together. And if they would have been caught, the guards would have killed them for having this Bible, but the guards never came in because the fleas were so bad. The guards didn't want to come in there. And so they were able to read this Bible and sustain them, and they would read verses like how they were more than conquerors through him who loved them. And they would cherish that and cling to that. And delight in those words. They were more than conquerors. Even though they were sleeping and flea infested on top of one another, starving to death. They were more than conquerors. After she was released, as the war ended, she started traveling to tell about her story. And she'd go to churches and she would share her story and share the gospel. She'd been doing that for a while. And one night she was at a church and she shared her story and she shared the gospel. And afterward, this man came up to her and he told her how he was one of the guards at that camp who locked her up and imprisoned her. And he looked at her and he said, I'm so thankful for what you said tonight that Jesus can forgive me for the horrible things that I did to you. And she looked at him in the eyes and in her own words, she talked about how she felt nothing. She felt nothing for this man who reached out his hand to shake. And she didn't reach her hand back. And reach her hand back because she didn't feel like she could forgive him. And, she, and in her mind, right then, she prayed, God, forgive me. But as I have preached about your forgiveness, that I cannot in turn forgive this man who did these horrible things to me. And eventually, eventually the strength came from somewhere and she put her hand out. And when she shook his hand, she says, a warm flash came through her arm to his. She looked him in the eye and she said, I forgive you. What enables a person to literally live through hell and survive and to lead through it, thrive through it, to to not give up hope, but to continue to delight in God, to be more than conquerors, that God would sustain me? How do you come out the other side of hell and forgive those who put you in it? How do you do that? How do you bear fruit even when the droughts come? How do you bear fruit when the all hope seems to be lost? By knowing and delighting in God and his word. Because he is the source of life. He is the river providing the nourishment for your soul. Here's the argument so far. Blessed is the one who through delighting in God through his word. Blesses the one through delighting in God through his word is made as strong as an oak tree that no matter what they face, they never wither. They grow because God, the source of life, sustains them. That's the psalmist argument thus far. That's the positive parts of the argument. That the blessed is the one who through the delighting in God and his word, through a heart that delights in God in his word, is made as strong as an oak tree, that no matter what they face, they will never wither, they will grow, they will bear fruit, because God, the source of life, sustains them. So, that's what happens to the blessed. Now, what happens to the wicked? We're almost done. What happens to the wicked? What is their end? The wicked are not so. They're not like the blessed God. They're like chaff that the wind drives away. What is, what is chaff? Chaff is the opposite of a life-producing free, a tree. Chaff is the little husk around grain. It, it is the little husk around that holds the grain together. It is light. It is, when you shake it, it just flies off. The wind blows it away and it provides no nourishment. It is but a temporary, disposable thing. And what he is saying is that in the end, for the wicked, for those who do not follow the, advi- the counsel of God and the instruction of God in his word, the wicked, their end is judgment. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment. Notice stand. 
in verse 1, they were standing, right? Verse 1, they were standing. Now, at the end, they will not stand in the judgment because they're like chaff. They're the opposite of a tree. They think now that they are in control. They think now that their plans are wise. They sit back and they say, hey, history's on our side. We know the course of human history. And they scoff and laugh at God and his instructions. Say they're old-fashioned. They're out of date. They don't make sense. They scoff at God because they think themselves so wise and in control. But in reality, they're chaff. In reality, the wind blows them away. They're not their own masters like they think they are. They are controlled by their passions and are slaves to them. You see, external forces like the wind push them around and drive them away. The wind, storms, the droughts, whatever comes, drives them away. They're light, they're fluffy. It is the exact opposite for the blessed. External forces bend but never break us. But for them, the ungodly external forces, difficult seasons blow them away and they are undone. In the end, they perish. The way of the wicked, that counsel the wicked people gave it, they perish. The way of the wicked may seem wise, but they are ruined by difficult circumstances. In the end, they face judgment and perish. Their counsel is it may seem good, it may seem wise, it may seem right, but it's not. In the end, they're driven away. It doesn't work, doesn't hold up. And in the end, they face the judgment of God and perish. But what happens to the blessed? What happens to the blessed? And notice at the end, they're called the righteous. Same, same person, blessing the righteous. What happens to them? Look down here at verse 5. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous. The Lord knows them. Knows their way. Knows who they are. The word know in the Bible carries more meaning than just our idea of mental understanding something. The Bible, it carries the idea of intimate knowledge, of love even. Think about how the Bible would say, and Adam knew his wife Eve and she bore a son. Oh, Israel, how I long to know you, God says. You see, when we delight in God's word, you don't just know God. God knows you. Delighting in God results in a relationship. It's both ways. The New Testament flushes that relationship out as adoption where we are brought into the family of God and known by him. Made sons and daughters. We, are brought, we, could, we could be brought into this family. We are able to be blessed. We are able to be this righteous person. Not because we're good. Not because we don't do these things all the time. Not because we always listen to the right advice or because we get it right. The reason we can be this righteous person is because Jesus, who was perfectly righteous, was treated like the wicked. Jesus, who was perfectly righteous, was treated like a sinner and like a scoffer. Which is who we are deep down. Jesus was treated like verse 1 here. So that we could ultimately be blessed. And be righteous. Jesus took the judgment, the judgment in our place. He was judged as a sinner so that we could be made righteous. He takes our place so that we can be blessed by delighting in the Word of God, meditating, delighting in His Word, and meditating on it day and night. True happiness is found in knowing God and being known by him. True happiness is found in knowing God and being known by him. True blessedness. All right. So let's look at the whole thing and then we'll be done. Here's the whole, here's the whole argument. Blessed is the man who walks not, who doesn't do these things, who doesn't walk the counsel of the wicked, who doesn't take advice from bad people. He doesn't stand in the way of sinners. He doesn't follow their path. And he doesn't sit in the seat of scoffers. He doesn't influence, he does not influence or the influencer of things against the Lord. But his delight 
His is the blessed man. His delight is in the law of the Lord. The center of his heart, the thing that makes him most happy is the law of God and the instruction of God, the story of God in his word. And on his law, he meditates day and night. And so what happens when you do that? You become like a tree planted by the source of life, the streams of water. And when you do that, you will yield fruit in season. Whether the droughts come or not, you will yield fruit. And your leaf will not wither when the droughts come, but you will prosper. You will keep going. You will make it. The wicked are not so. They're like chaff. They're not like the tree. They're not like the tree. They're like chaff. And the wind drives them away. They wither, they don't prosper, the wind drives them away because they're light and fluffy, they're not like a tree. Therefore, the wicked, right, the same wicked as this wicked up here, the wicked, they will not stand. You see, they were, they were standing up here. They're standing right here. Now they're not going to stand anymore. They're not going to stand in the judgment. They don't have any word to say. They don't have an argument to make. They don't have any counsel anymore when they face God. They're not going to stand in the judgment. The sinners... Right, they're, the same word up there. Sinners in the congregation of the righteous, no, but they're not going to stand. They're going to be. They're going to. Their way is. They're going to perish. But the Lord knows the way of the righteous. He knows us. He loves us. No causes. So may we be a people. Blessed by God, who do not walk in the advice of the wicked, but who delight and meditate on the word of God all the time, so that we might be strong and unwavering no matter what the world throws at us, and that we might live for God all the days of our life, until that day when he finally calls us home, we can be blessed. Pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what it means. We thank you that it is rich, and it is a delight and that when we soak it up and we meditate on it and we know your word, it brings life. That this isn't a stuffy old textbook that's laborious to look at, or, but it is filled with, with glorious displays of your love and affection. It is filled with great descriptions of your redemptive works in the past is filled with wonderful promises about that you will keep and promises that you will do. Father, help us to find ourselves in the story, to see how you're making all things new and how we get to be a part of that. Father, if there's anyone in this room right now who doesn't know you, who isn't known by you, they're not blessed, but they're following the advice of the world and they know that that will only end in their judgment and their perishing. They're like chaff. God, if that person's in their room right now, as I know they are, to give them the courage as we sing this song to walk up here to the left and come talk to me about following Jesus. You don't have to be ready. You don't have questions. Come ask your questions. Let's talk about it. He will take you warts, stains, faults, failures, scoffing and all. He'll take you, bring you and make you part of his family. If you're here this morning, you need to pray about anything, I'd love to pray with you. God, give us the strength. In Christ's name we pray, all people said. We'll stand and sing together.